Yeah, I guess initially it was very much a focus on the physical side because I think my acceptance was that if you have a baby and a traumatic delivery, you're not going to be necessarily having sex that quickly and it's probably is going to be painful. Dyspareunia is a common but poorly understood problem affecting around 7.5% of sexually active women aged 16 to 74 years old. It's characterised by persistent or recurrent pain with attempted or complete vaginal entry or penile vaginal intercourse. It's an area of female health that is associated with substantial morbidity and distress, yet it remains a neglected area of female health, perhaps in part due to the difficulty both women and clinicians have in raising what may be seen as a sensitive topic. Another difficulty is that dyspareunia can be caused by both physical and psychosexual problems with considerable overlap between the two. Many women are seen by several clinicians before the condition is recognised and a diagnosis reached. I'm Kate Adlington, clinical editor at the BMJ, and today I'm joined by two authors of a recently published Practice Pointer article about dyspareunia. Dr Nikki Lee is a specialty trainee in obstetrics and gynaecology in the South London Deanery. Hi Nikki, thanks for joining us. Hi. And Dr. Leila Frodsham, consultant gynaecologist and lead for psychosexual medicine at Guy's and St. Thomas's NHS Trust. Hi. Hi, Leila. We're also joined by Poppy, who's a person who's experienced dyspareunia and has received treatment for this and is going to share some of this experience with us today. Thanks for joining us, Poppy. Hi. I wondered if we could start with you, Poppy to hear a little bit about what your experience has been with dyspareunia. Yeah, sure. Um, so for me, all of the um, the pain and problems that I have faced are really the result of the birth of my first child. Um, I had quite a difficult delivery with him. It was an instrumental delivery um, and I had quite bad tearing and damage and scar tissue after that. Um, so I mean, ever ever since the birth, really, I've had kind of just general pain. Um, but I guess the pain and sex was the the thing that kind of kept me seeking treatment and um, kind of trying to yeah fix it basically. And was that something that you noticed quite soon after the birth? Um, yes, it was, and actually, even at um, at the birth, it was at the delivery. The doctor that delivered. Um, my son, even at that point, she actually automatically referred me on to one of the gynae clinics at the same hospital because I think she kind of knew at that point that follow-up care would be needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, like ever ever since really, mm-hmm. the pain was kind of ongoing. And did she explain to you at that point that that might be something that you might experience as a result of the tears that it might impact on your sex life, for example? Um, no, I don't think that was a discussion at that point. Um it kind of became, I think initially the discussion was much more about addressing the scar tissue and the day-to-day pain. And then it was over time, it kind of became, that became like the focus of it because that was the one thing that became like the issue. Because I mm-hmm. guess day-to-day it kind of got better yeah. quickly. Okay. Yeah. Um, how, I suppose, so you had received the referral to the clinic. How did you feel able to raise the dyspareunia, the, the pain you're having in sex, specifically as an issue in those appointments um yes yeah that was fine and if anything actually it was always um it was always kind of the benchmark as well so the reason I think I I used to go back every like 
eight to 12 weeks for years we're talking and the main thing I think that kept going that kept me in the system was because sex was still painful so it was a focus but it was always very very much about like removing the pain um, and that was kind of the focus so whenever I kind of explored it a little bit more to say this is really having an impact on our relationship or on you know me psychologically that was the answer was generally well let's fix the pain and then we can address that because you're yeah. not going to address that until we fix the pain so, so you mentioned it it was impacting obviously on your, on your life and your relationship Do, would you mind sort of telling us a little bit more yeah, about that um, so I guess that kind of got worse over time initially um, I guess it was my expectation after you have a baby you probably think and assume you know life won't necessarily be the same um, but over time it became much more of an issue after I guess I thought the kind of normal threshold um, had kind of passed um, and I also I think I put such a lot of hope on every appointment fixing me so that became like quite a dangerous cycle for us mm -hmm. um, and for a long time my answer in the meantime was just avoidance it was just too painful too upsetting so we just didn't mm -hmm. enter into it and that obviously mm -hmm. became quite a big issue yeah. over time yeah so we'll ask a little bit more um, in a bit about kind of then how that was managed and, and, and the, the appointments that you had. But yes. perhaps we can hear now from um, Layla and Nikki a little bit more about um, what exactly dyspareunia is and, and, and how it presents um, for, for clinicians. Um, so um, dyspareunia basically just means sexual pain, which can be anything from the entrance of the vagina to deep in the pelvis. There is a DSM classification um, which looks at the different areas and how it's identified. And there are certainly gynaecological causes of pain and there are obstetric causes of pain. Poppy has mentioned that she had... Um, an instrumental delivery, and there is a higher incidence of sexual pain problems with instrumental delivery. However, interestingly, some people who already have some sexual pain problems may think that having a caesarean section will reduce the chance of this occurring, but in the first six months after delivery, you're as likely to have sexual pain problems with a caesarean section and a vaginal delivery. So there isn't really a clear answer to it, and that physiologically is probably related to breastfeeding and lower oestrogen when you're breastfeeding. And I mentioned there at the start that we think about 7.5% of sexually active women um, experience this. Um, Nikki, kind of what, what, do we have any idea about what, who it is that experiencing it? Sort of what, what ages this, this symptom is more common in? Um, Essentially the 75 Percent is a figure that was quoted from a recent cross-sectional analysis of um, the British population, um, which involved 7,000 women between the ages of 16 and 74 years old. Um, it, in that study, they stated that those most likely to be affected with this prunia are those in the 16 to 24-year-old age range and 55 to 64-year-old age range. Um, with those figures being 9.5% um, and 10.2% respectively. So, in fact, although um, this 7.5% uh, figure has been quoted, prevalence has actually widely, sorry, widely varied in the literature, which generally reflects the wide range of different methodologies that have been used in the past. Um, 
We would estimate, I mean, we would guess just sort of anecdotally that because it's such a difficult condition to present with and women find it difficult to, to seek help, that there's probably a lot of women who are sort of experiencing dyspareunia but are unable to seek or, or, or don't know how to find um, help with the condition. So it's probably underestimated overall. And it was quite useful in the article. You talk about how women who might find it difficult to present initially to, with um, with pain during sex or the dyspareunia, but they might present in other ways and how clinicians can be kind of alert to this um, as the underlying cause. What what are some of those ways that people might present? So it's, it's not uncommon for women to present to gynae clinic, say, with a p- problem with their periods um, or a more generalised pelvic pain. And what they will do is um, evaluate whether or not that they, they feel that the doctor or the nurse that they're talking to is willing to discuss uh, this. It may be that Poppy has some experience of that, but I certainly see patients who say, I've tried to talk to someone and said sex is a problem and been told actually just just put up with it I mean the worst I heard was lie back and think of England Uh, but I've heard some pretty bad things that people have said and actually what we need to do is make it easier for healthcare professionals to talk about sex and to include it as part of their routine history but not include it as is sex painful because that then puts things into a box and it might not be that the pain is the primary feature because sex is actually very far from occurring. Mm-hmm. So it may be that they're not even trying penetrative sex. Um, and what do you think, what would be a useful kind of catch-all phrase or introductory phrase that people could use, you know, non-specialists could use if, if they were thinking this could be an issue or they want to explore it a little bit further? So i use very very open questions and I will just say how's sex Mm -hmm. and I think most people with how's sex could go it's fine I don't want to talk about it and that's not probing too much but it also leaves it open for them to say well actually doctor I've got a bit of a problem with x y whatever Mm -hmm. Um, but if we make it a relaxed part of a history then our patients will feel more relaxed and they're much more likely to talk to us The majority of patients, if you look at the plicit model of how sexual dysfunction is managed, will be managed in primary care or by the first person they talk to, if that person listens. If they're dismissive and they don't want to talk about it, possibly because they don't feel very confident because they've not been trained, then patients retreat and may hide this for many years before they represent. Perhaps at that point we can ask Poppy kind of what what were your experiences when you attended clinic? Did you find there were some clinicians that you did sort of feel more comfortable with and feel more able to discuss this? Did you identify what it was about those consultations yeah. that made it easier? Yeah, it was it was quite varied. And actually, in the time that I used to go back and forth multiple times, I'd often be seeing different people. Um, it, what it did actually surprise me, given it was a gynae clinic, how some did look kind of uncomfortable. Sometimes if I brought it up saying I have issues in with sex, some of them would look like they kind of didn't really want to enter into that conversation and would make it much more medical. OK, so let's go and have a look. Mm. It was always, you know, very examination based. Um, some were much more open 
Um, there were a couple of that, that stand out. So as part of the care, I saw um, a women's physio for quite a lot of it. And she had quite a different style. Maybe it was because she wasn't a doctor. And yes, she did examine me, but she couldn't do the steroid injections. She couldn't do you know, all those quite hands-on medical things that I experienced as well. Um, but she just had like... And there, there were a couple of other doctors as well, but they just had a more open... Um, way of addressing it and she was more concerned I guess about the background because it was very much about fixing literally fixing the scar tissue but I think my situation was kind of complicated by the fact that the the birth itself was quite traumatic and there was kind of I had like post-traumatic stress and that actually I didn't really give much thought um, or attention to at the time but there were a couple along the way that kind of brought that in a little bit. And I think that was really important. So you found it useful when people wanted to talk sort of more broadly about the relationship yeah. and your experience as well, for example, of childbirth. Yeah, it just held, helped me make sense of it. But equally, like it was, it really was a kind of 10, 15 minute appointment. And it was really, really busy clinic. The waiting times were long and you kind of knew when you got in there, you really had to just quickly get your words out. Mm-hmm. Um, and the consultation was relatively quick and then you're kind of out the door generally with something else to try and come back in eight weeks so yeah did you find sometimes in that environment that actually you, you didn't get the chance to kind of raise the you know aspects of what you're experiencing with the difficulty with sex that you wanted to definitely yeah it was un- it was it was always quite under pressure um which generally meant this is why i kind of talk about it being quite a dangerous cycle for me because i went in always with like a lot of hope and i kind of always had the illusion that i might come out fixed mm-hmm. which obviously is maybe a little bit optimistic but normally i would come out disappointed because i didn't quite get my point across or i didn't really feel mm-hmm. that listened to and then there was another date for two months down the line that i'd have to kind of try again mm-hmm. Um, I guess, sorry, just, inter- just to add something there, I guess that there's probably a few facets that make, um, that enable doctors or healthcare professionals to be able to help patients like Poppy. And the first would start with knowledge so that they feel m- more confident um, helping patients with, with this problem. And then secondly, obviously, communication skills are key, especially in a situation where you might have time pressure in a clinic, as it may not be time necessarily, but more your the words and the way that you interact with your patient that makes them feel that you're able to help them um, and I suppose lastly it highlights the importance of having specialist clinics like like Layla's um, where there may be um, a possibility of being able to follow up patients and have some sort of continuity of care and perhaps a little bit more time than your busy generalist clinic possibly. So thinking a little bit about kind of our for our, maybe our non-specialist readers, GPs, who who perhaps w- will not have the benefit of a, a longer appointment. So probably will be seeing someone for the first time and do only have 10, maybe 15 minutes. Kind of what we've already said about the importance of kind of open questions. What else should they, do they, is it important to cover during that time as part of the history and maybe even inv- examination um, to kind of start to be able to develop some sort of differential diagnosis and think about the next steps? So um, in the Institute of Psychosexual Medicine, we follow the lofty model of consultation for sexual dysfunction, which is that every single patient, doctors too, we rehearse what we say before we go in and see healthcare professionals. The second thing is really observing what's going on and actually being brave enough to say, you seem really anxious about this. I'm, you know, I'm really happy to talk about whatever is bothering you. Um, Noticing 
the referral letter perhaps if you are in a secondary centre or how they are behaving sitting in the waiting room maybe saying you know this seems to be making you really angry perhaps there's some frustration there about the length of time you've had this problem um, then we we feel what's going on in the consultation so if we're feeling those feelings we actually reflect them back to the patients think about them and interpret them uh, so we can feed back um, that is a basic model of consultation skills that is used by general practitioners too and it's just part of good consultation skills but I think really the vital thing to remember is that your patient is the expert in this problem you don't need a huge amount of knowledge as Poppy has said actually what she really wanted to talk about was her delivery um, and sometimes if we focus on physical we don't give people a chance to talk about problems um, and patients will choose who they want to talk to. So if you happen to be a healthcare professional who gets lots of patients saying, I need to talk to you about this, you've got really good uh, consultation skills. If you don't get people disclosing things, it might be worth actually reflecting a little bit on that and thinking about using more open-ended questioning. If kind of through that that lofty sort of approach, patients do sort of open up and are able to share some of their concerns, also some of the details of the history, what what are the next in, in sort of important steps? Is again, if if you've only got ten minutes, you know, creating an environment where people can share that probably so, takes up a large. So the first thing I would say is the majority of the patients that I see should be in the one to two percent of patients with really chronic problems that are complex that have had lots of doctors involved. I shouldn't be seeing someone who's completely straightforward they would be very likely to already have seen someone and be dealt with. So over 90% should be managed within their first healthcare setting. And most will be, absolutely. Um, but I think the important thing to remember is actually ask your patient how they're feeling about things. You don't need to come up with a prescription or an operation to manage them. You can sit and listen and then say, you know, what do you think is going on here? And often, with a little nudging, patients will come up with the answer and talk to you about things. I also kind of hunt in that listening period. And if, for instance, I see a lady who says to me, when I had my baby, I had a wound, it was infected, it was like an ulcer, I don't want to show anyone, the healthcare professionals that saw me were shocked. You know, they said they'd never seen anything so bad. The midwife or doctor that stitched you shouldn't be practicing. I mean, there's pretty profound things being said to people that actually to say to them, my goodness, that sounds absolutely awful. And often you'll find when you get on to the examination couch, because people are undressed both physically and also emotionally, they'll often talk to you about some of those difficult things. So you'll often find that things come out during examination that perhaps weren't there before. Do you have a sense, sort of from studies, how, what kind of proportion or prevalence of people presenting with dyspareunia are a purely physical, you know, cause? What proportion are, so, so you mentioned there's a lot of overlap. Is there any sense of kind of, of, of what, what the causes are? Just just thinking about, you know, if, if someone does present, how, how important is it that you do an examination, for example? I would tend to examine. Uh, 
I do tend to see a lot of people who are labelled as psychosexual who also have coexisting physical problems. One of the big ones is vulval dermatitis. Uh, so there's a real trend at the moment to use lots of feminine washes, shower gels, where you strip away the good bacteria, you take away the top layer of oil on the skin and you end up with cracking uh, eczema type uh, appearance. And they classically will often say that the pain is at the back of the vagina on entry. Um, so remove all allergens that they're using and that includes washing powders, loo paper, sanitary protection, gel based pads can cause dermatitis. Uh, so we go down to everything being hypoallergenic and often that can really help. Do I think that you get isolated physical problems? Very rarely because actually if sex has become painful, sex is so innate to us as human beings and it's so private that without a doubt, if you have a physical problem, it's going to affect how you feel about sex in your relationship. I don't think that there are any studies specifically that look at the proportion of patients suffering from dyspareunia who are purely physical or purely psychological or psychosexual, um, you know, dri sexually driven. Um, I mean, the other, the importance with a, a physical examination is that um, a large proportion of the women who have this condition are in the older age group and are postmenopausal. And that's an vulval vaginal atrophy is a common cause of dyspareunia. And it's actually something that we don't pick up very well and um, actually recently the British Menopause Society have released a, a consensus statement um, just commenting that it is urogenital atrophy is something that we're not picking up very well and we're not treating very well and that women are not presenting um, themselves with very well and it's causing um, sort of significant um, problems for women and you may be something you can only diagnose after examining a woman so it's something that we should be more aware of. And is something that is that something that could be managed in primary care, for example, or, or absolutely, yeah, absolutely. It's not something that necessarily needs to be seen. Uh, doesn't have to be referred to a specialist um, to be managed at all. It's such a common problem, and um, there's lots and lots of guidance um, for GPs and primary care uh, practitioners to just start by sort of administering simple treatments initially and work their way up. So it is something that could be managed in the primary care setting, absolutely. So the British Menopause Society are actually um, starting a process of doing um, training of GPs in hotspots where there are no menopause specialists. Uh, so they're doing a big uh, piece of work in Wales at the moment to try and reach out to more GPs to help them, enable them to diagnose menopausal dyspareunia. And, and you mentioned the art the importance of distinguishing in your history between deep and superficial dyspareunia and, and pelvic floor dys dysfunction sort of how would you ask that and, and why, why is that important so it is it is important um, because you want to ensure that you're not missing something physical so if you're sending to a pure psychosexual clinic where you may have somebody who doesn't examine the majority of psychosexual services will be run by counsellors who don't examine uh, so it's really important to exclude physical problems um, but it will also change how you may approach them now I would say that frequently because there is such stigma about sexual problems in in the uh, general public 
as well as amongst healthcare professionals, because we are all human, um, that it's often difficult for people to be very clear about where the pain is. Um, so people will say, actually, look, it's just a pain down here. And it will take some real guidance to talk about, is it right at the beginning? Because then you're more likely to be dealing with vulvodynia, uh, vulval dermatitis, or is it really deep in your tummy, is the way that I put it across. Um, because that then really helps to distinguish. The two can go together. If you have a physical cause of a sexual problem, it's only natural, about a bit like putting your hand on a hot plate, your reflex reaction is to remove your hand, your vaginal muscles are exactly the same. So they will constrict if they think that by having sex you'll be in pain. So the pelvic floor dysfunction often goes as a secondary feature to sexual pain. And you also mentioned the article that some people describe pain or, or sexual pain, but on, on further questioning, it, it isn't actually a physical pain necessarily they're talking yeah, about. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's really vitally important to ask patients when it started. Uh, physical things often take a wee while to develop, but actually when it's more psychological, there is a, a major trauma, a cause for it to start happening. It will be described, sometimes patients will actually give you a date. Um, and then you can say, well, was anything going on around about that time? And they may come up with something that was really significant for them, but they didn't realise quite how significant at the time. And just making that connection between a difficult experience and their sexual problem in itself can help to heal it. Maybe I can um, ask you about this point because, because you, you described before how in your case there, there was this kind of physical cause that you identified, but over time you began to think, or it began to involve aspects of your relationship and perhaps develop a more of a psychological element is that the case and 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 kind of how, how did that understanding come about um yeah i guess initially it was very much a focus on the physical side because i think my acceptance was that if you have a baby and a traumatic delivery you're not going to be necessarily having sex that quickly and it's probably is going to be painful but i think i don't really know the time scale but I think over time it was a kind of shift between allowing it to just be something that we were focused on get, getting me fixed and actually well, I think it came more from my husband when the re reality was that you know avoidance was was causing problems really because I think it was it became something that was too complicated for us to understand and it was just something you know before we had children it was absolutely fine and then suddenly it it was something that was really complicated that we were struggling to kind of work through mm -hmm. together and understand. Um, I think he felt quite rejected and I think he kind of thought that although I was putting a lot of energy into fixing it, I think the reality was that evidently it wasn't necessarily going to be a, an overnight fix. Mm -hmm. So that's where, yeah. And what, what was the, sort of what were the things that were offered from the clinics you attended that you found helped um, the process? Um, um, so in the in the kind of hospital setting when I was in, in the gynae clinic that I saw, um, it was all very, um, it was a lot of physical intervention. So there's, I guess, kind of protocol that you go through. I mean, it was the perineal clinic and there were a lot of new mums sitting in there. So I guess there's kind of um, steps that you do um, combined with the women's physio. There was kind of a lot of physio. And then I had these like steroid injections, which were incredibly painful. Um, and that that's also when it became 
even going to the clinic became quite a fearful process. So I think that combined with trying to have sex, this is where, as Leila talks about it, kind of, you know, physiologically, I would just clam up if someone tried to do an examination or if my husband tried to come near me, and that made it all much worse. Um, along the line, I've then had, ultimately ended up having two more operations. I had two repair operations after that, um, which at the time I kind of, I was quite kind of excited by the idea that they might, you know, fix it. Um, and that could be the end of it. But what that actually meant was both of those, the re the recovery from them was basically the equivalent of having a baby again. It was quite a lot of, t it was a week off work under general anaesthetic. It was, it wasn't lighthearted. It was kind of, you know, quite a full on process. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then eventually after that, when it became clear that the pain, it probably had improved. I think all of these steps I'm sure had improved the situation, um, but it was after that. Um, where they really were scratching their heads that I actually said, uh, can you give me a recommendation of somebody I can go and talk to about the psychological impact this is having on me? So it was, did you, did you feel it was sort of you who maybe first introduced the yeah. idea that it was, that this could be kind of, you know, a psychological aspect? Yeah, so I tried quite a lot of times along the way um, and it was, well, let's try something else. It was always kind of, let's fix it. And I, a lot of times I'd been told, well, of course, it's going to have a psychological impact on you, but until we fix the pain, you're not going to be able to recover. So the, the two were very separate. That was my problem. And I didn't really acknowledge that they could kind of go hand in hand. I mean, clearly they were. And at that point, were you referred to a psychosexual yeah. clinic? Okay. And and what was your experience of that? What, what Very different, there? yeah. Um, so that was... I guess a much longer consultation. Um, I think one of the most significant differences for us, given that I think it was kind of the point on our relationship, which was the main reason to then seek out some more help, um, was that my husband was fully involved in the process as well. Previously, the spotlight was always on me. It was like, let's fix you. You're, you're not the problem, but you know the problem lies with you essentially. And there was a lot of um, focus on that, which was quite a lot of pressure. But he was much, much more involved in the process and. Um, also, just to be honest, having a third party to explain the complexity to him, I think, was quite helpful for us. One of the aspects and key messages that you brought out in the article was around reassurance and how actually reassure, you know, reassuring patients uh, or, pe or women presenting this problem isn't always helpful. Can, can you tell us a little bit more about so that? We're taught as doctors and healthcare professionals to say, that looks absolutely fine, lovely, all is good, I did a beautiful job doing your operation, blah, blah. Uh, what often happens with patients with sexual problems is if you come to a gynae clinic and you've had a baby and you've had some stitching and somebody looks at it and says, oh, I did a great job, that looks absolutely wonderful, there's nothing physically wrong, uh, we do laparoscopies and we say that, is that it kind of closes a door for a patient when their doctor who is very powerful in their eyes often, I'm not saying I'm powerful, but doctors are seen as powerful, says everything looks fine. It makes it extraordinarily difficult for patients to then go, actually doctor, things are not right. And, and sorry, just to, I suppose, following on from that, it, it, what is more useful to say then? Um, what, what, if someone is seeking reassurance, what, what? So, as an example, if I have a patient who describes a terrible um, wound when she has a baby, an instrumental delivery, um, has been sutured, 
and I put her on the couch and say, that looks chipper, she won't say anything. Whereas if I say, how do you think things look now? Then I'm very likely to get out of her, actually, I don't think this looks okay. And it's really painful. And Poppy, how are you getting on now? I mean, this has been quite a long time for me. Um, my son's only five, so it's been quite um, quite a number of years to kind of get to a point where I'm finally kind of happy. Um, I guess perseverance is quite important. Uh, there was a <coughs> lot of times along the way when I, I did give up, I kind of just discharged myself from the clinic and then we just said, well, this is what it will be. So I guess perseverance is quite important. But I think it's just recognising... If, if it is impacting you more broadly and just the physical symptoms, which is inevitable, then um, finding ways and the right person to address that with. Yeah. And, and perseverance sort of on, on your behalf, but also... On, to kind of help you. Help, yeah. yeah, on the healthcare professional's part. Yeah, as well because like breaking that pain cycle was just impossible. I was kind of completely stuck in it. And then more years that went by, the worse it became. And the worse it kind of the effect it had on the two of us. Um, Poppy's obviously mentioned that it, that it's really taken up to five years for things to get to a point where things have improved. But what is what is sort of the, the prognosis, I suppose, for for people presenting with this? Nobody has actually done a survey of people who don't come back to psychosexual clinics. I did an ad hoc one by getting my secretary to ring the people that didn't come back for follow up. And we found that most of them were better, but they had decided they were better so they didn't need to return. Um, in my time of doing this over the last 20 years, I can think of just a handful of cases where I felt that I haven't helped very much at all. The vast majority will get better and get to the point where they're having functional sex. And there's lots of things that we can do to make things less painful. So thank you very much for joining us today, Leila. Thank you. Nikki. Thank you. And Poppy. Thank you. If you'd like to read the BMJ Practice Pointer article called Dyspareunia, you can find it online at bmj.com along with all our other education articles. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, then you can find more podcasts by the BMJ on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll be back again soon.